everyone, and welcome to another Scotsway podcast. And I'm so pleased to be joined once again by writer and musician Doug Johnson. Hello, Doug. Hi, Ali. How you doing? I'm well. I'm very well. It's been a while since we've had you on, and the world yeah. has changed quite a bit since that time. Oh, <laughs> but Just it's a little really bit, good. yeah. A little bit. Uh, but it's really good to see you. Um, there's not only a new Stealth book coming out, but um, The Great Silence, and we'll talk more about that later on. But you've also got a new album coming out, Crow Hill. So let's start with Crow Hill. Um, it's not simply a lockdown album. There's a lot more going on there. So what can you tell us about it? Yeah, well, it's um, yeah. So it's my first kind of full solo album because I did. I was kind of doing lots of EPs over the years um, because I just found it easier that kind of three or four song like short burst thing. But I kind of wanted to do something um, kind of more focused and more concentrated. And I really got back into songwriting in a big way. Um, it's sort of towards the middle to end to last year. So this was kind of so as a bit of background, you know this, Ali, but I guess listeners more, that I had a, I had a stroke last March in, in 2020, about three weeks before the entire planet went into lockdown. I was already in a kind of lockdown on my own because I, I was recovering from a stroke already. Um, so it was kind of entirely out of the blue. Um, and, and I was very lucky. I mean, I think that that sounds very extreme. And, and actually, my circumstances weren't necessarily as... I mean, I could have been, it could have been a lot worse, let's put it that way. Um but I, I had a stroke at the start of March, just out of the blue, when I was out walking, because uh, I, I have a habit over the last few years of actually going for, get a bit of exercise, fresh air, and walk up Crow Hill, which is the kind of lesser known hill that's right next to Arthur's seat. I live in Portobello in Edinburgh, and I'm sort of round the back away from the city centre, and that's the hill that's closest to me. It's the one that you can't really see it from, from the city centre. Um, and I was doing that for years, and I kind of liked... I was thinking about why I used to go up Arthur's seat all the time, but it's like absolutely chocker with tourists. Yeah. And it just feels like, you know, basically you might as well be on Princess Street, you know, being at the top of Arthur's seat if it's a nice day. But like you can sit on Crow Hill, which is virtually the same height, and just have the place to yourself. And you can see like the people swarming around Arthur's seat, uh, like ants. Uh, and it's kind of, it's a lot more peaceful and relaxing. So I was on my way up there um, last March when I had a stroke halfway up. Um, and uh, I won't bore you. I'm quite happy to talk about the details of the stroke, but I won't bore you with it just now. Um, but I had a sort of bit of recovery time. It was only a few weeks, really, um, until I was kind of back to being able to function pretty normally. Right. Um, and the first thing I did after this, after that was, I mean, of course, that was at the, the height of the first lockdown. And if you remember, everyone was mentally and psychologically very stressed at that time. It was like a real, you know, a real hammer blow. I kind of escaped into writing at the time. And, and I actually, the first thing I did was write The Great Silence. That was my kind of lock, lockdown post-stroke book. And I found that really enjoyable, just spending some time every day, just creating a fictional universe where I hadn't had a stroke and where there wasn't a lockdown and all that stuff. Yeah. And, and as that was kind of coming to an end, I started to get really back into the music and songwriting. I'd kind of do it in the background all the time. But I just thought I'd like to focus on it a bit more. And so I had a bunch of half ideas and I started to put together songs um, and inevitably they were about my circumstance, uh, some of them, obviously. So there's several of this. I mean, the album's called Crow Hill. And I was I was using, I was getting back to exercise and walking up Crow Hill uh, as a kind of, as a kind of 
physical therapy and I guess mental emotional therapy as well. Yeah. Um, and so I was writing songs about that and about the whole experience. So that's kind of how, it, how it's come about. And I, and I had the sort of songs all done by the end of last year and then I kind of recorded them myself, which I absolutely love doing, just getting, just setting aside some time properly. Because I've always never really given it the time since I was in a previous bands and since my writing career has taken off. But it was great getting back into it and like just like sort of that exactly the same as the book kind of disappearing into the creative process. And I mean, it's weird because like if I'm writing a book, I'll be on social media every half hour to an hour. I always, it's very easy to get distracted. But if I'm making music, I literally won't pick my phone up all day. Right. I just will not do it. I just get it's so much more absorbing. Like before you realise that you've been in like you look my little studio here for like eight hours and you've created a song and it feels absolutely fucking amazing. Uh, so I don't know. I just enjoy that so much. And I'm really keen not to let that slide again and not to just put it on the back burner and try and take it more seriously myself. And am I, so you play everything on the album? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've always kind of done it that way. I was in a band a long time ago called Northern Alliance. We were yeah. kind of, I mean, I've been in, I've been in various bands over, over the years. Um, uh, and that was the band where we were kind of, I was writing the songs and I was singing and playing guitar, but also drums. I mean, I'm, I'm a drummer originally. And I'm drumming in a covers band, the Fun Loving Crime Writers. Um, but I kind of taught myself guitar when I was a kid as well. Um, and uh, it's sort of bass that you pick it up, you know, as you go along through the years. I'm pretty long in the tooth now. So, uh, and key, I mean, I'm not a great keyboard player or, or pianist. I wish I was. I wish I'd actually stuck it at those piano lessons at school. But I know enough about chord structures and stuff like that to actually to just about get, get a synth line down or a piano part. Uh, and I just love doing all that stuff. I, I mean, I, it's, I do love collaborating as well, but actually I'm a bit of a, maybe a, a bit of a, um, a control freak and that you can get to do everything yourself. And it's it's a lot. I mean, if I spend eight hours in the studio here myself, that's nothing to me. That's fine. But if you're spending eight hours with someone else, it's going to be frustrating for one or other of you, I think, after a while. So I, I, don't, I quite enjoy just the creating stuff on my own process. That's interesting. There's a lovely piano ballad at the very end of the album. And I was going to ask you who else you had on the album, but now... You know, fantastic that you managed to do it yourself because it's a real. I mean, uh, uh, on you go. No, no, and it's. I mean, uh, bless you for saying that. It's not a complicated piano. I mean, I really wish I could play piano like a proper pianist. Uh, I mean, it's fairly simple stuff. Uh, one of the things that I'm kind of determined to do from now on, I'm kind of just much more into creating stuff all the time. I'm really kind of energized at the moment, and I'm definitely going to teach myself to play the piano properly or maybe even go back to piano lessons once we're not all doing it over Zoom because that would be a bit nightmare. I also want to get singing lessons as well. I just think that I've never, there's something about, I mean, my, my voice is fairly painful for me to listen to, like a lot of singers, I think. Um, but I don't, I've never, I've never thought about singing before. I mean, when I was starting to do this record, I actually did some like online vocal tutorials, which are really interesting to think about your voice as an instrument. I'm sure you've spoken to other singers um, who are thinking much more actively about what they're doing when they're singing. Yeah. And I have, I've never done that, but I would love to do that more actually. And just, I mean, I'm never going to be, you know, an amazing vocalist, but just to be able to use it like as an instrument, I think would be so much more, give you such, such a um, sense of satisfaction, I think. Because the other thing, to give people a bit of an idea of how the album sounds, is there's different styles on there. There's rock, there's a bit of country, there's some pop influence. You know, you, you've really kind of um, covered a lot of areas when doing it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess um, 
I mean, I'm actually my taste in music is more eclectic now than it ever was. I think, uh, and I've been in, and because I'm, you know, I'm 50 now. I've been in grunge bands and metal bands and country bands and lo-fi bands and like electronica and just everything. So, and I kind of love it all. It's like it's like these it's like genres of um, fiction as well. It's like you know, there's not. I mean, if you listen to one, if you read one kind of book or listen to one kind of music, you're, you're, you know, you're, it's an incredibly limiting situation. And there's good, and you and, I, you and I both know there's like, there's amazing stuff and there's crap in every single genre of every kind of music and every kind of fiction, every kind of writing. So I think that, I mean, all that kind of stuff plays into it. And I think it's important um, not to think about what kind of style it is when you're doing it. That's not really, as, as somebody who's creating something, it's not really your job to define it. Um, that's your job, Ali, to talk about it. Um, but I've kind of, I've always had that attitude, actually, and it's the same with the books. And I don't really, it never occurred to me what genre I'm writing in, uh, which is maybe to my detriment because then, you know, marketing departments or whatever have it, you know, have struggled to sell it to the right kind of people sometimes and that kind of thing. Um, but with the music, yeah, I mean, I've, I'm influenced by all sorts. I listen to a lot of kind of neoclassical stuff when I'm writing, like Max Richter and Johan Johansson and um, Alex Summers more recently. And that's not really in there, but there's a bit of atmosphere coming in. I listen to a lot of electronica, like lo-fi stuff. There's lots of wobbly pianos and synths in there, um, kind of little arpeggiators coming and going. And But then also there's some, you know, I do like to play a guitar solo, not very well. So, you know, there's a bit of rock influence coming in from like from way back as well. So and I like to hit the drums hard if I get the chance. So that's always in there as well. I have to say there are some great drums on the album as well when you're flowing through them. <laughs> and you mentioned uh, the fun-loving uh, crime writers, which has kind of been how most people probably know you as a musician in recent years. Yeah, that, I mean, that has been an, that's been an yeah, that's been an incredible kind of uh, how that's taken off. I mean, that's hilarious. Um, just to give, if anyone doesn't know about them, like, so it's a band of crime writers. We're a covers band, and we play, and it's me, Val McDermott singing, Mark Billingham singing and playing guitar, Chris Brookmeyer singing and playing guitar, Stuart Neville is our lead guitarist, an amazing guitarist, and Luca Vesti plays bass, and I'm drums and do some backing vocals. I'm I'm occasionally let out from behind the drum kit to play acoustic guitar. Um, but it's it's amazing. Like we did a thing a few years ago um, in New Orleans. It sounds made up because it's too rock and roll to be true. But th th there was a um, a crime writing festival there um, called BoucherCon, which goes to a different city every year. And um, they had a sort of open mic night as part of the book festival, and it was in the House of Blues. And we were like, holy crap! Um, and it was just people. Were, there was a house band, and people were getting up and doing a turn. And at one point, we kind of um, the band went for a break. And me and Mark and Stuart and an American guy called Bill Lofilm, um, we got up and played a couple of songs. And I actually didn't play drums. I played guitar and sang. Um, and it went down really well. And I can vividly remember coming off the stage and like chatting to Mark and Stuart after it saying, do you know, we could form, we could do this back home. We could form a band back home and I'll play drums because drummers are the hard thing to find in a band. Yeah. Right, because like, because guitarists tend to be ten a penny. Like, not like Stuart; he's an amazing guitarist. But, um, but I was like, I'll play drums, and so we came back, and it's a sort of whole rigmarole of how it came about. But um, we kind of knew, like, at the same time, the Bloody Scotland Crime Writing Festival in in Stirling every year has an open mic thing, and we'd done I'd done acoustic stuff with Val, like me playing guitar and both of us singing. I knew that Mark had done stuff with Chris Brookmeyer. Me and Luca had done stuff as well. So we kind of knew there was like musicians that were also crime yeah. writers. 
So we kind of, you know, just put some feelers out to see who'd be interested. And at the same time, I, I'm kind of quite good friends with Roland. You know Roland as well, Gulliver, who used to run the Edinburgh Book Festival. And I was telling him about this, and he said, that's great. If you if you ever get it together, we'll book you, like, for the Edinburgh Book Festival. And, like, we'll book you again. And I never heard it in for a while. And then he just got back to me with an email saying, yeah, so I've booked your band to play. <laughs> and we hadn't formed at that point. We weren't really a band. It was very much still an idea. Uh, he said, I booked you to play on the Friday night at Unbound at the Edinburgh Book Festival. So then we had to get our shit together, um, which was great. And so we spent a couple of, I mean, we kind of, we, we just do songs about crime and murder. So there's a whole host of them, obviously, mostly Johnny Cash, you know, I Fought the Law, Watching the Detectives, you know, was, we soon discovered there are hundreds of songs about murder and, and death and crime when you look into it. And so we put a set together and we played that first, that first Edinburgh show. And I think most people turned up expecting it to be fucking awful um, and sort of to give us and thinking, oh, well, we'll give them benefit of the doubt. And I think we were surprisingly good or at least not bad in that first attempt. Um, and it's just gone from strength to strength and the gigs have got bigger and bigger and to the point where we played Glastonbury, like, you know, the year before uh, lockdown in 2019 and we were doing actual festivals and and actually we had proper, like most of our gigs had been at book festivals, which is, yeah. makes sense, that sort of thing. But we had a whole bunch of like actual just gigs booked um, for April and May last year, which were all cancelled because of the lockdown, including one at the Queen's Hall in Edinburgh, which was sold out. Oh. which is absolutely absolutely gutting. But we're very hopeful, Touchwood, of getting back quite soon. We've been talking to some festivals about, about playing again, but, of course, everything's up in the air at the moment. Sure. Um, are you thinking of going live with the current album, then? Do you think you would take this and play some of it? Or what's your plans? Well, um, it's it's a bit tricky. I need to recruit a band. Yeah. Um, because, or... or or do it solo acoustic, um, which I think it would be quite hard and quite time consuming to get a band together. So I think that would be slightly problematic. Um, but I'm quite, I mean, I, the songs, a lot of the songs were written first and foremost on, on acoustic guitar, just me singing and, 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 you know, sitting in the garden or sitting in my room. Um, and so they, they most of them work that way um, pretty well. And I kind of do have acoustic versions of them. So, I'm quite happy to do that. I haven't organised anything like a proper tour. There was talk about me doing um, like a little, because when the band had these gigs booked, like they needed a, a, like a support slot, yeah. you know, a support band to come on. But um, due to finances, we didn't want to pay a whole band. So at one point it was suggested that I just, you know, do some of my solo stuff acoustically, which would be okay up to a point. And I quite like, um, maybe not the, the slog of going out and doing like a full tour, but doing like small little individual things. I mean, I've been doing, I've been playing live music at my book events for years and years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I would keep doing that. I would like to get some proper music gigs, maybe little, like small little festivals and stuff. Um, and if anyone out there wants to offer me a gig, I'm more than happy to do it. I mean, I'll have guitar, will travel. That's my motto now. And it'd be great to actually see human beings in the face again. Yeah. Oh my God, that'd be such a such a crazy idea. Absolutely, it makes me think about the Aussians, though your novel um, about the band, uh, and uh, which is a, a fairly brutal depiction of what life is like on the road. Not sure you were, uh, you know, necessarily want to be back to that stage. Yeah, well, it was, it was, uh, yeah. I mean, it was, it's, it's probably wildly outdated now. The Aussians, I don't think there's that. I mean, it was about, but it was. I mean, I wrote it. Came out in two thousand eight. 
Um, but the kind of music, the, the, I mean, that's really kind of almost before uh, online music was like, yeah, you know, proper and promotional deal and all that sort of stuff, really. So so bands were still getting in a transit van and playing the toilet circuit and, you know, shitty little pubs and clubs all around the country. Um, and so that's kind of what it's about. But that, yeah, so, <laughs> and that was from brutal experience of my own yeah, from having been in bands, <laughs> sitting in the back of a transit van uh, with a bottle of vodka waiting to get to like, Aberdeen for a crappy gig where no one turns up, you know. Um, so there was plenty of that stuff in there. But what was really good about that book, Ali, was that I um, I wrote a bunch of songs because there was lyrics at the start of every chapter and I wrote songs, real songs, to go with the fictional lyrics for that fictional band. And then I played them, I played acoustic versions of those songs at book events. And actually I got to do some music events. I did like uh, Latitude down in uh, England and stuff like that. Um, and that was such a good experience. I loved it because it breaks up because like book events, God bless them, can be a little bit boring or they can be a little bit stayed. And if you like, just can take a guitar and like play some songs and that could be really helpful. And it, when that kind of the promotion for that book ended, I felt kind of bad that I wasn't going to be able to do it again. So I just didn't stop. I just kept taking the guitar and like playing songs that were kind of either related to the books or some of my own original stuff. And there's usually quite a lot of overlap because if you're writing songs and writing a book at the same time, there's a, often a lot of the same subject matter and themes running through them anyway. So so I've played guitar ever since. I honestly love doing it. It's, it's such a laugh. And going back to um, Crow Hill, you're saying some of it, uh, some of the songs on it um, are about uh, you having your stroke. Um, did they help you come to terms? I mean, how did you feel about the whole thing? Because I know you as one of the fittest guys that I know, you know, football and you're running and all of that things. It came as a shock to me. So God knows what it came to you when you found out about it. Yeah, it's it's weird. I don't, you know, because you do hear, you, it's, it's kind of a cliche, isn't it? That it's like, you know, you have this like, brush with mortality and then you know treasure every moment afterwards and smell the flowers and all that shit um, and I'm kind of very wary of that um, I'm not sure I mean it, it was kind of a shock but it, at the time that it happens you're kind of so just dealing with the immediate physical situation yeah. that you don't really have time to think about it and I think it was maybe a, a lot later on that I started to think I mean I was kind of quite I was resentful a little bit, but, you know, because um, you know, immediately you sort of go, well, I'm quite fit and my cholesterol's fine and everything else. Why me sort of thing? Um, but at the same time, I mean, it was a, it, it was a moderate stroke. That's the technical yeah. medical definition of it. So it's somewhere in the middle. So it could have been a lot worse. I, was, I spent a couple of nights in the stroke ward uh, and God help me, the other guys in that ward were, you know, a lot worse off than I was. Um, so, you know, I was counting my lucky stars, really. Um, and so it does help me come to terms. I'm not sure if you ever come to terms. It's just something you start to, it's just something that you kind of absorb along with everything else. Um, I, I have found that, um, that I am kind of a, li a little bit more laid back now, maybe, and just letting stuff slide a little bit, you know, just like, like not sweating the small stuff, I think. Um, because you just sort of think, well, what's the fucking point? Like, you know, um, life's too short. Let's get yeah. on. And so I'm, so there's a little bit of that, but it's, I wouldn't say it was a massive sea shift. I don't think my wife or my friends or anything would say, you know, it's been a big change in my personality or anything like that. Um, but it certainly does it kind of shake you up, I think, and it gives you gives you a moment to pause and think about what, what it is that's happened, I guess. 
And I mean, what did writing the songs kind of help with that, or was that was that just another thing that you 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 had in your life that you were going to write about? Because some of the other songs, you know, are about anyone who's lived through the last year will be able to recognise themes such as isolation, you know, loneliness, and and lots mm. of other things as well. So yeah, was it just another part of the year that was just different, definitely different to most people? Yeah, I think it was. It was just another. I mean, I've always written about like my own personal experience. I've been that. I'm that kind of songwriter, and actually that kind of novelist as well. And as loads of my, I mean, it's like you. If you listen to the songs or read the books, that's me. I'm on the page, like I'm in the music. Um, I'm not one. I'm not one who takes on a voice and sort of runs with it. You know, I'm a great admirer of people who can do that sort of thing. And I think this was just another part of my of my experience that I, there's something to write about. And I didn't really think too much about it. Um, I was just writing it. Uh, and then it was interesting when uh, I let a couple of the guys in the Fun Loving Crime Writers listen to the record a wee while ago. And, you know, a couple of them sort of, in fact, yeah, several of them mentioned, you know, about the content of the lyrics and about how it related to what had happened to me. Because I haven't really seen any of them face-to-face, obviously, yeah. since, like, I had my stroke because, you know, we've all been in lockdown. I've seen Val, that's the only one. Um, and they they sort of mentioned, oh, it's, it's really interesting to get an insight into what you went through and how, you know, how you felt about it emotionally and stuff. And that kind of surprised me a little bit because I guess I just didn't think about it. I, I, maybe I'm quite stupid like that, that. I don't think you write something personal and put it out there and then, of course, people are going to react to it personally. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. But... Actually, I think it's quite useful to not think about that when you're making the thing, because then you'll become too sort of self-aware uh, and worry too much about that sort of stuff. And so I didn't really, it wasn't a conscious effort. I'm going to write a stroke record or I'm going to make songs about what it is that's, yeah, what it is that's, what it is that I've gone through. It just happened to be another part of, of what I'd gone through in the last 18 months. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the latest Skelf uh, novel, because um well, let's think of it. Your move to Arenda Books, I haven't spoken to you since you moved to Arenda Books, and it does seem yeah, yeah, yeah. that you've given, it's given your kind of writing a boost. I'm not sure quite what I mean by that, but um, you did Fault Lines with them, didn't you, and Breakers, and there just seems yeah. to be a, a freshness, is that the right word? Anyway, they're, they're excellent books, and then you've got the Skelf series, which I think is almost yeah. prime Doug Johnson in that it it, you know, you, a lot of the things I would expect from a Doug Johnson book are turned up to 11 in them, particularly in the latest one. So yeah. how, how have you felt about the kind of move to Arenda and the books that you've written with them? Well, uh, yeah, that's a really good question, actually. It's not the kind of thing that, I mean, um, you know, interviewers and, and generally readers don't think about publishers very often, but um, it, it, has a, it has, you're right, had a massive impact, I think. Um, just because... Um, Arenda is Cam Sullivan who runs Arenda Books. Who's you know she's an absolute powerhouse. You know it's kind of one woman show very much. Yeah. You know it's a very small company, um, but she uh, has been a huge supporter of my work from like from long before I was that she was publishing me. She was you know yeah. I used to meet her at book events all the time um, because I was doing events with her other authors because my books were quite like their books. Yeah. Um, in that she publishes stuff that is, I think, technically probably crime thriller uh, within that genre, but it's very much around the borderlands, the sort of hinterlands of that kind of genre. It's not stuff that you would necessarily, it's not the sort of very, the most mainstream police procedurals or psych thrillers or stuff like that. 
that I think that other bigger publishers are are dealing with. Uh, and she gives writers absolutely free reign. To, I mean, there's I, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky in one sense that I've never really had that, you know, negative feedback from any editors I've had saying maybe you shouldn't do this or tone this down or whatever. But with Karen, it's absolutely, you know, um, you can write what you want. I, I know it'll be good and we'll make it work and I'll, I'll sell it. And it's, it's, it's not a coincidence that the first book that she published of mine was Fault Lines, which um, in retrospect, looking back now, uh, is quite a hard sell in some, in some respects. Just in terms of genre, it's very much a crime thriller, I guess, but it's it's also, well, it's set in an alternative version of Scotland, yeah, which right. is like, you know, a, a, volcano and earth, a volcano and earthquake zone. So, And there's a, a fictional island, a volcanic island in the Firth of Forth. So there's, there's, you know, pretty strong elements of speculative fiction in there. But it is absolutely a crime novel as well at the same time. So I think that the fact that she, I mean, that's something that I think, well, I know for a fact, it definitely put other publishers off. Right. Um, because they just go, oh, I can't see where to place it in the market, that sort of feedback that I think a lot of writers get. Um, and so that she was, yeah, I'll take this on and whatever else you're writing, I'll, you know, I'll publish it. Um, and I think just it gives you that confidence to go where your instincts um, lead you, because, you know, it, it can be a very solitary business writing. And, um, and, you know, there's absolutely, I always say to sort of aspiring writers and people who are, are trying to get published, like there's absolutely no point in chasing trends and trying to write what you think the market is going to want. That's that's going to be the death of what you're writing. Like the most important thing is to write the story that you have to write, that only you can write. And so it's about trusting your creative instincts um, as much as possible. And I think just having that confidence from a publisher who is who is absolutely going out of her way to you know um, to uh, get as wide an audience as possible. And that's been kind of um, and that's been the case really for. Um, uh, for all the books, and then that has led into these scale books. So that so just the so those first two books that I ended published were um, my books nine and ten, I think. So and they'd all been standalone, like you know, books. And I just had this idea um, for writing a series, at least a trilogy, uh, of books about um, a bunch of women who have to take over the running of a funeral directors and a private investigators when the patriarch of the family dies. And, and that that comes from various different things. It's like, you always get asked for your ideas. Where do you get your ideas from? And it's, it's always about a million things at once. Yeah. Um, but I had this idea, and I think other other publishers might well have balked at it or just said, no, it's too weird or something like that. But she was just like, yes, this is great, amazing. Just like, you know. I would love to publish it. It's like, you know, it's just, it's like, it's a dream come true. And you're right about the sort of Doug Johnstonisms, if you like. It is absolutely, it was, I was, I was chucking everything at this one. Like I was really, because I knew it wasn't going to be a one-off. I was going to write more than one. So with terms of the characters, I was, I was really trying hard to put, it sounds weird. I was trying to put as much of my own personal experience and, opinions and thoughts and kind of ideas about the world into these three characters, which sounds strange when they're three women, one of which is 70 years old and one of which is 20 years old. Um, But actually there are elements of each of these women that are elements of my own character and and my own opinions about life, I guess. I think to do it across the generations like that uh, uh, was so 
interesting because it allows you to write about being young, but it also writes, allows you to write about growing old. And you seem to take great joy in doing both, I think. There's a lot of uh, uh, um, great uh, things that all three characters can go through, which are identifiable. They all make mistakes, but they seem to be the kind of mistakes that everyone at that stage in life would make. Yeah, well, at a very embryonic stage, I mean, the first character I had when I, you know, it's a kind of, it's a total, um, it's a total mishmash storm in your mind of kind of ideas of what you're going to do. And, and the first character I had was Jenny, who was, who's 45. She's the sort of middle-aged one. Yeah. It's, it's roughly my age when I started writing it. Um, and, but I very quickly wanted it to be more expansive than that. And, and I, and I hit on this idea of having the three generations. So it's grandmother, mother and daughter, effectively, of this same family. And one of the, the absolute joys of that is just exactly that, is being able to, I mean, I, I'm kind of closest to Jenny because she's a kind of gen, Generation X, cynical. She's been, you know, and she's kind of, has, she's fairly jaded about life and stuff like that. But that's fine for one character. We can't write three characters like that. So, I, and I've always found that thing about generations really reductive like you know when there's a while ago on social media where like boomers were having a go at gen x and like millennials were having a go at whoever whoever the fuck else it is and i was less like it's like that's pointless you can't say that you have the same traits as millions of other people just because you were kind of roughly born in the same decade or something i mean there might be slight overarching things about some but you know i'm roughly the same age as Nigel Farage and Jacob, Jacob Rees-Mogg, right? So we're not the fuck, you know, there's no word that can describe the three of us that fucking covers the three of us. Like, like you know, that, that, we couldn't be more different. So, so that's fucking ridiculous. And I really wanted to look at that, but I wanted to look at, you know, to really get inside what it might be like to be 70 years old. And Dorothy's a, she's the uh, matriarch. She's a fairly unconventional 70 year old, but that was another thing that really bugged me is that like, you know, as you get older, I mean, this happens to everyone, but, you know, you realise, you know, as a young person, you know, everyone seems old. Yeah. Uh, and then you realise, and I'm 50 now, and it's like, well, 70 is not old. I mean, there's plenty of 70-year-olds. You know, if, you were, if you're 70 now, right, I did, you know, you do the maths, you say, well, they're born in 1950. That means they were a teenager in the 60s. Yeah. Like, well, that, you know, they've got, a, they grew up in a certain kind of mindset, maybe, you know, if they were exposed to the right kind of things. Where, like, it was ridiculous to, you know, to portray someone who's 70 year old as, like, you know, basically past their prime and, like, you know, waiting for the knock on the door from death and, and basically hurpling around. And, you know, it's like that's, these are all like ridiculous things that, that really bug me. And similarly with um, Hannah, who's 20, you know, there's a real, I mean, that, I think that when I started writing the first one, there was a lot of this sort of, you know, it was the start of that like snowflake thing. Mm-hmm. You know, millennials were like, oh, precious little snowflakes and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, that's fucking bullshit. You know, something like, well, for example, just something that happened the other day, like the penalty shootout, yeah. like the England players, they're, they're all like, you know, millennials or Gen Z or whatever it is, you know, and they've got incredible bravery and bottle to like go up and take a penalty in a European Championship final. There's no snowflake action going on there. Exactly. In fact, these people are much more, much more aware of, the um, uh, having a social consciousness about things than say someone like fucking Piers Morgan or something like that, obviously. So, I mean, he's the fucking snowflake. So it's like, yeah, we're going on acid rant now, it's good. Um, but it's like, I just find that that's what I wanted to explore. I wanted to look at the fact that, you know, you can't just say everyone this age is this kind of person and try and get under the skin of that whole thing. 
So going on to the Great Silence uh, in particular, I wondered if, because um, it's maybe the most extreme of even the extreme, and that's saying something. Uh, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but I'll just say feet. You know, that <laughs> when they're getting, you know, at the beginning you go, okay. Um, it got me thinking, is there ever any, anything that you write down and you think, oh no, you've gone too far there, Doug? Is there anything that you think, oh no, I can't possibly uh, uh, put that out, or is that not the case now? No, I don't think so. I, I don't think I've ever thought of any. I, I, I mean, it's, I'm very wary of self-censorship in that way. I think um, I think that you can get away. This is the third book in the Scale series, The yeah. Great Science. So it's like, um, so, I mean, it, it can be read alone, uh, fine, but it is really, it's part of a bigger picture with these kind of scale women and their stories. And I think what I'm sort of, what I've, become realised, because this has been a real journey for me writing more than one book with the same yeah. characters is that, is that I mean the thing that brings people back to a series of books is the characters, the central characters spending time with these, these people, in this case these three women, and, and you've built up these characters in such a way that the readers know them and you can start to push that because because they feel comfortable in the, in the presence of these women so then you can start to throw stuff at them that otherwise you might, it might not have worked if you'd just done it in a single book, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and you can start to push the envelope a little bit. And I just, I didn't really think, I mean, there's, there's so, there's actually so much in this book. Um, I'm, you know, slightly worried it's going to be too much for some people, but there's like, there's, I mean, it's, I mean, I don't mean extreme, although there is that as well, but just like actual content. I mean, there's a, a ton of plot in this. I mean, yeah. much, much more so than I ever wrote in my standalone books, which were um, streamlined. I mean, the prose is hopefully still streamlined and taut and, you know, and fast paced, but I'm, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. So each, you know, there's some, each of the three women has their own personal situation going on. And there's at least three or four sort of major cases. I mean, the book starts with Dorothy's dog um, that she's inherited from the previous book, discovering a human foot in the park. Um, uh, and that's probably about the least dramatic thing that happens in the whole book. Um, and there's sightings of a, uh, some mysterious big cat roaming around in the south of Edinburgh. And Hannah ends up taking on a case from a guy who thinks he's being gaslit by aliens from outer space. Um, and so, and so, there's, so there's quite a lot going on. Uh, but it's a, it's a matter of, and hopefully I try and tie it in as well. That's the thing that, that was the biggest challenge of these books, yeah. I think, is making it, not just seem too um, bitty or episodic yeah. and making it seem that there are hopefully some themes, kind of overarching themes that run through the different threads in the book so that it kind of feels more like um, if I've done my job right, you know, touch wood, fingers crossed, that they're kind of interconnected, like, you know, threads that weave into something bigger. That's the kind of, that's the dream anyway, hopefully. No, absolutely. I think that does really work. And it's not, never feels forced, you know, like, well, we have to all meet here at the very end as well. And I think what's interesting, what you're saying about the uh, throwing more at the characters as people get to know them. But I think it's also having trust in the writer that, you know, you're not going to do something, perhaps, I mean, you never know, but, you know, too awful with these people. Because you do, it's interesting how much you come to care for characters over a series of books, perhaps, you know. One you put away, yeah. you know, when you know you're going to be meeting up with them again, it's almost like, yeah, you know, take care in the meantime. 
Yeah, and all the sort of feedback I get about, you know, the, the Great Silence is out in ebook now and it's out in paperback in about a month. And so people are starting to read it now and I get feedback online and, uh, you know, emails and, and, and social media. And all the sort of feedback is, oh, it's so great to be back with these women. So it's all yeah. about, you know, spending yeah, time again, you know, because because you've set up the characters in such a way uh, that people are really enjoying spending time with them. And of, and of course... I mean, they are, all three of them are deeply flawed in different ways. Uh, so it's not just like a bunch of nice people. That would be the most boring book ever, you know, if you're writing about nice people doing nice things. That's that's not that interesting. Um, but they but they do have their own, they've all got their own hang-ups, they've all got their own points of view, and they've all got their own little quirks and foibles. Um, but at the end of the day, yeah, it's about hopefully the reader having confidence that I am, I mean, I think it's like anything you write, that you, as long as you treat, the subject matter and the characters with empathy and respect, yes. um, then yeah. you, you can write about anything and you can do anything in the books uh, as long as you are mindful of uh, them and their situation, whoever it is you're writing about, I think. Yeah. I remember when I first, when I read the first one and I thought it's funeral parlor and private investigation, it's death and detectives. That just seemed like, you know, why hasn't that happened before? It's the perfect kind of, uh, how did you, you know, you say that you take a lot of things from real life. And I know from talking to you previously, you do a lot of research into um, things in your books. So how did you come up with Funeral Parlour and Private Investigators in the same family? Good question. Good question. Well, um, so there's a couple of, there was a couple of things like really obviously I for a, for like a long long time for like over a decade I've had this idea I just it was a kind of name and I had the name Jenny Skelf right and I was like I, I, I wanted her I mean it's like literally it was just a note on a bit of paper in a folder um, and I was like I want her to be like a kind of private detective who doesn't know how to be a private detective yeah. so like so it was kind of like a Jim Rockford thing except she doesn't really know what she's doing like she has to take over the business or something like that. So it's kind of the opposite of like Veronica Mars or something like that, because she kind of knows what she's doing, that sort of thing. But I always had this idea, but I couldn't really, I was never really comfortable with just that. I was thinking, well, I didn't, I just, how am I going to make that work? It doesn't really, I can't work out this thing yet. Um, and then a few years ago, I was, I was very lucky. I, I got a, a job, a part-time job as a writer in residence, at a funeral directors. Right. Um, in Edinburgh, although they have the the funeral directors actually have branches all over um, Edinburgh, the north of Scotland, and some in the north of England as well. Uh, and so I did that job, and that was basically um, uh, so I went in one day a week, and it was actually it ended up being a, a non-fiction writing post. So the end result of that, I mean, I did it for six months. So I went in one day a week, and I basically interviewed all the staff. Um, as many as, as as were willing, and basically job shadowed them. So I sat in on like you know funeral um, arrangements and funerals actually being conducted and the kind of business of it, and the embalmings and stuff like that, the behind the scenes stuff with uh, with the deceased. Um, and the end result was a kind of it's a small little non fiction book, which was never published widely, but it's basically the company have them and basically give it to new starts to give them an idea. And the idea was to kind of give the staff a voice to and give them a little bit of a little bit of time and space to think about um, the good work that they do and how it affects their attitudes to life and death and their own, you know, their own personal lives, that kind of stuff. 
Um, and that was an incredible experience. And I found them all, you know, I came away with huge, um, huge amounts of admiration for, for the work that they do, which is, you know, incredibly hard. But I mean, there was a running joke when I was doing that. Like I was chatting to all staff and they would be like, oh, you'll get plenty of stuff for your books here. Uh, and I would say, well, not really because like, I mean, I write crime and thrillers and, you know, that's those books are based on conflict and tension. Uh, and the thing that funeral directors do is defuse conflict and tension, you know, incredibly stressful time for um, the bereaved. Um, and the kind of, they're the ones that smooth everything over, uh, make sure it all happens um, without, you know, without any problems. And so I kind of, I couldn't, I kind of couldn't think, uh, and I didn't really want to initially. I was kind of, well, I can't really think of a way to make this into a book. I mean, they weren't against it. I mean, the, the people who gave me the job were like, you know, as long as you uh, anonymize stuff, you can use things that happen, you know, it's fine. Um, and I couldn't see for a long time, but then I, there was literally, it was kind of a brainwave at one point. I just, well, why don't I just put that together with a private investigator thing and make it that they have to do the same thing? Like they have to, I mean, why not invest, you know, why not have an idea where, the, like, because they're, they're not a million miles apart. You, I mean, you can imagine a scenario where people who are coming in to get funerals might also what need some kind of, yeah, some kind of investigative work done about, yeah. you know, missing relatives or something else, or, you know, whatever it is, something like that. And so I just, let's just like clash them together and, you know, and chuck in a million other things and see what, and see what happens. And it's, and, it, and part of it was, again, just, having a little bit of faith in your own creative instinct, I think, and just going, well, I, yeah, because I, I genuinely thought, you know, as soon as I had that idea, I thought this could really work. Yeah. Uh, and I was, and before I started writing, I was chatting to Val McDermott about it, you know, backstage at, before a gig. And I just told her, I just told her the one line pitch. I'm just like, you know, it's like about three women who take over a funeral directors and a private investigators. And she went, oh my God, Doug, you have to write that. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. All right, I will. <laughs> it's fine. I mean, it's good to get a little bit of like a little bit of a boost from someone like Val, who knows uh, who knows a thing or two about writing. Um, so I mean, I, and, I, and I've honestly, I've had the most fun writing these books. I've had really have had the most fun writing them. It's been so much. Uh, I mean, it's hard work. The plotting's different. Um, it's much more um, much more complicated than I've done before. I now have to have a big wall chart here with like index cards on it. Uh, with numbers for plot lines and with different colours for different characters and moving them all around and all this kind of stuff. But I've absolutely loved every minute of it. It's just been a total joy to write these. Uh, yeah. And so I'm, I'm just really enjoying, like, you know, enjoying writing, which is great. And uh, they're, a, they're certainly a joy to read. They're absolutely. Um, I hope it's more than a trilogy, but, uh, you know, I guess who knows. Uh, what is next for you, Doug? What's, yeah, who, what's knows? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Can you say what, I mean, I think, you know, the album comes out on uh, July the 19th. And as you say, the, the next scale for the Great Silence is out on August the 19th as well. Is that right? Yeah, 19th of August for the paperback. Yeah, ebook's already out. Yeah. So, but uh, can you look forward to what's happening next or are you just going to enjoy the fact that you've got these out? No, there's always something brewing. I have um, because usually by the time a book comes out, you're kind of working on or um, or finished even sometimes the next one. Yeah. Um, so I have been for the last few months um, writing a science fiction novel. <laughs> right. uh, so uh, it's you know, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's good fun. I, again, I absolutely love doing it. Um, I'm kind of just letting. I've kind of done a couple of drafts of it. 
uh, my my agents look having a look at it at the moment. I'm going to get some feedback. I'm sitting like it's kind of good to leave it a little bit a fallow yeah. field for a few weeks and just come back to it and see. Um, but I really enjoy doing that as well. It's I mean provisionally it's called the space between us. Uh, it's kind of like um, it's not it's not like a big space opera thing. I, I guess I don't quite have the balls for that yet. I mean I I, wish, I mean I've always been a massive science fiction fan. I'm a huge admirer of science fiction writers. Uh, and the world building that they do is like, you know, incredibly, incredibly difficult and incredibly impressive. I've kind of bottled it a little bit with this <laughs> and it's, it's kind a little bit, it's set in contemporary modern Scotland yeah. where uh, three people have their lives changed um, when they encounter something uh, in, in which is an alien uh, and then they have to go on the run. So it's basically, uh, like Thelma and Louise meets um, Arrival. There you go, uh-huh. something like that. Excellent. <laughs> that sounds like the pitch that you've worked out for it. That sounds good. <laughs> I just actually came with me just now, but I'll, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to use that now. Well, Doug, thanks uh, for taking time to have a chat with us. It's really good to catch up with you. Oh, it's been an absolute joy, Ali. It's so good to see you. And I just, um, yeah, I just can't wait to get back out and actually see people. I mean, it's, yeah. things are still up in the air, obviously. I mean, things seem to be, you know, uh, loosening with the restrictions, but also cases are still high. Um, so, I mean, I'm supposed to be doing some festival stuff in the next couple of months, but most of them are doing an either in-person or yeah. online. You can you can watch it either way. Um, so it would be great to see people and actually, you know, and be sociable again. Although yeah. as writers, we're kind of like, we're traditionally quite hermits. So um, so it's been quite weird having that enforced. I mean, you know, and what I've discovered a bit during lockdown is that almost my entire social life is book festivals. Um, and so uh, when book festivals don't happen, like I've got zero social life. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's a bit depressing, but uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, that there's going to be, uh, hopefully get back to like something like normality soon. And I get to, you know, and like I say again, if anyone wants to offer me a gig, I'm more than happy to bring a guitar and make a noise. Well, I hope to be there when you do, Doug. That would be great. <laughs> and uh, we will be back next time with someone completely different. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>